Good evening, ladies. Good evening. It's so good to see all of you here. Wow, what a crowd, and it's so fun hearing you talking around your tables and chatting. I love that. Welcome to our first night of our summer study. Um, we're kind of getting a jump on summer, I think, uh, because some schools Kids aren't even out of school yet, so um, we are starting early, and I want to thank you for coming out tonight and being a part of our study, studying God's Word together, nothing greater. I am Deb Haygood. I'm so happy to be here tonight. It's a joy and a privilege to open up God's Word with all of you. I, too, am like Amy. I love summer. Uh, It's a more relaxing schedule. Maybe, for some of you. Um, Longer days, lots of sunshine, uh, lots of flowers blooming, and a lot of fun things to do. And there's no better way to start summer than with a Bible study. So for five weeks, we're going to look at five names of Jesus. Now, I was told that the camera over there is not working that screen, so just kind of get into, you know, scooch around so that you can... See, I hope that didn't bother you. It's summer. We're relaxed. Kick off your shoes and, you know, lean back. Uh, Camera's not working. That's okay. We're going to study God's Word together. And I'm excited about these five names of Jesus because, you know, names are important. Uh, We identify each other by our name. We know people by their name. That's how we identify them. Um, Generally, you are known by your name. I uh, work at JPS in labor and delivery. I'm the newborn nurse and... Um, one of my very first questions I ask the new parents after their baby is born is, what are you going to name your baby? And most of the time, they have a beautiful name picked out, but every once in a while, they're still trying to decide what name to pick. And if it's a baby girl, I always say, well, you can name her Deborah. That's... <laughs> And that's what they do. They start laughing. And so far, no one has named their baby Deborah. Yeah. And I've been doing this a pretty long time. Yeah. Names are interesting. Names are important. But Jesus is the name above all names. Worthy is the name, Jesus. As we read through the New Testament, we see many names of Jesus, and these names, each one, tell us something different about him. They reveal God's heart to us. They um, give us a better understanding of who he is, a more intimate understanding of his great, amazing, lavish love for us and his remarkable good plans for us, and each name holds a promise for you. So each week, be looking at that name and look for that promise that it holds for you. We also want to contemplate um, how these names of Jesus will change or enhance the way we walk with him, how we talk with him, how we, um, the words we say to him, the way we act and the way we think. So uh, that's what we're going to be doing this five weeks. And so let's turn now to Matthew 1, and we're going to look at our first name of Jesus tonight. Now, um, as you turn to Matthew 1, we're going to be starting in verse 20, but, um, and we're going to be flipping through a little bit here. So maybe you can mark your 
things that you've looked at. We'll see that in just a second. But in your small group discussion around your tables, you've already talked about uh, Joseph and what he was thinking before Jesus was born. And we know that he was betrothed to Mary. Now, that's a word that meant um, engaged to Mary, and it was a legal binding engagement. To break that took a lot of work. It wasn't easily broken, but Joseph has heard that she is with child, and he hasn't been with her, and so he is going to quietly go about the legal process of breaking that engagement, um, not to bring shame to her or more harm, but to um, do it quietly. And then while he's contemplating this, an angel of the Lord speaks to him in a dream, and that's what we're going to read. Verse 20, but as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, and this is the prophet Isaiah, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. So here is our name that we're going to look at tonight. It is Emmanuel. And they tell us here in the scriptures that Matthew tells us it means God with us. And really, the whole Bible is the story of God's persistent desire to dwell with his people, to be with us. It's his great and glorious love story. Right in the beginning, in the Garden of Eden, God made man and woman, and he fashioned us in his image. And then he walked every day with Adam and Eve until one day in their disobedience, their willful, rebellious act against God, they were separated from him. God is holy. But out of his great love for them and for mankind, he made a way to redeem us, to rescue us from sin. Now, in the Old Testament, in that book of Isaiah, God gave a sign. The prophet Isaiah gave this sign from God that God wouldn't let his people, the Israelites, be destroyed. Because from them, their line and lineage would come the Savior of the world, God's Son, Jesus God the Son. This prophecy is found in Isaiah 7.14. It's not on your verse sheet, so if you want to look up later, Isaiah 7.14. And it's realized or it's fulfilled when Jesus is born. And that's what we just read in Matthew 1.23. So Jesus came to rescue us, it tells us, to save us from our sins. And uh, we know that is true. We also see that in Mark 10.45. And this is on your verse sheet. There's an extra sheet of paper along with your outline um, that has some extra verses on on there, and this one says, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. And then Jesus also came to earth to reveal the Father, to make known God the Father, so that we would know, that we would see God the Father. Jesus tells us this many times in the Gospels, and on your verse sheet, I have two of those places, both in John. Um, John tells us in 1.18, No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, and this is referring to Jesus, he has made him known. And then Jesus himself says this in John 14, 9. He's talking to the disciples and to Philip, and he says, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. So Jesus came to earth to reveal the Father. 
He uh, took on flesh, and he came to dwell with humans. He is totally divine. He is God and totally humanity. He was man, and he came to walk on earth to show us, to give us visual pictures of Emmanuel, God with us. So what does that mean, God with us? I thought that we would look at um, some snapshots in Scripture. We're going to look at five different places in Scripture, just little snapshots, or maybe today we would call them screenshots. I don't know. We're always taking pictures with our um, phone. But I want these pictures, these snapshots, to be on your heart and on your minds so that no matter what is going on in your day or in your life, you can know that Jesus is Emmanuel. He is God with us. So first, let's turn to John um, chapter 2, verse 1. Fourth gospel. We'll turn right over there. John 2, verse 1. And this is a time of celebration. So our first snapshot is going to be a time of celebration. It's a happy, joyful time. And so let me begin reading verse 1. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. And when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. So let's stop right there for a second and talk about that. So we see Jesus is at a wedding. He's at a happy, joyful occasion. And he is with some of his disciples in Cana. And that's up north in Galilee. And it's pretty close to Nazareth. And that's the town where Jesus grew up. Now, the wedding celebration was a joyous time. And it could go on for several days. And the bridegroom was responsible to finance this. So Mary comes to Jesus, and she says um, they've run out of wine, um, which would be an embarrassment to the groom and to his family. And so because of that, some people think it's possible that the groom was related to Mary and Jesus, or at least a very good friend. And that's how she knew that they had run out of wine. So now Mary probably didn't expect Jesus to work a miracle here because he had not worked a miracle before this time. But as her firstborn son, um, and I get this because I have a son that I go to and say, hey, can you figure this out or take care of this? I mean, I think she was going to Jesus to say, hey, can you somehow take care of this? Um, And then we see Jesus respond with the word woman. Now, I want to let you know that that is a very polite and respectful uh, term in that culture. Today, we'd think it sounded kind of harsh, but that was a respectful, polite way. And then the next thing he says is, "Um, my time is not, why do you involve me? And that's really referring to a change in the relationship between Jesus and Mary. He's now not so much her son as he is the savior of the world. That is his mission, and he is embarking upon it. Now, Mary probably didn't fully understand what Jesus meant by these words, but she steps back and she says to the servants, do what Jesus says. So let's see what happens next. Verse 6. Now, there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. And Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. Okay, now these water jars that were sitting around that were pretty big, they were for um, purification. Now, the Jews had lots of ceremonies and rules and laws, and one of them was a purification on washing hands. And so they would take this special water, and they'd pour it one way over their hands and then the other way, and then they were ceremonially clean. And so that's what 
they were for. And when Jesus says fill them up and that was to the brim, that means to the very tip top of those jars. Not one thing could have been added into that jar. And then he says to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast, which would be our present-day wedding coordinator. And so they took it. And when the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, he did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. The master of the feast calls the bridegroom, and he says to him, everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, you know, when they're a little tipsy and they don't care what they're drinking, then they bring out the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. He's amazed there. This is the first of his miraculous signs that Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. So Jesus does this miracle of turning water into wine, and not just any old wine, but delicious wine, great wine, excellent wine. The master of the feast is saying, wow, you're saving this till now? This was really good wine. And this miracle, verse 11 tells us, manifested his glory. So in the midst of this wonderful, happy occasion, Jesus is present, and he is at work. So what about you? In those happy, joyful, celebratory times, do you see the hand of Jesus at work? You have to look for him, and when you see him at work in these times, thank him and praise him. It brings him glory. I have a picture in my own mind, a happy time, um, and it's the uh, story of my daughter's wedding when Rachel married Mike. And at the rehearsal dinner, we can put that picture up, you guys can look at it, when Pastor Kitchens um, at the rehearsal dinner said to them, be looking for Jesus tomorrow at the wedding. And so at the wedding, he said in the ceremony, Jesus is here, and he told everyone that was in the church, Jesus is here. Jesus comes to weddings. And then he began to talk about this John chapter 2 story of the wedding at Canaan. And as I sat there, I thought, Jesus, you are here. You are involved in this. In fact, you've been involved in this whole relationship. With, in fact, you've been involved even before their relationship. Because I had prayed, and some of you in this room prayed with me, that my daughter Rachel would marry a man, and I prayed two things. One, that he was a godly man, loved the Lord, walked with Jesus, and two, that he adored my daughter and that's who Mike is. He loves the Lord. He walks with Jesus. And they just celebrated 18 years of marriage. And he still adores my daughter. You know, when I remember this happy time and Jesus' involvement, I want to praise him and thank him. And just to be fair, let's stick up there the picture of my son. Did we already see that? Okay. Um, because um, I'm crazy about my daughter-in-law, Erin. She, too, is a godly gal, and she loves my son. And just two days ago, they celebrated their 12th wedding anniversary. So happy times, and Jesus is in the midst working in that. So look for the hand of Jesus at work in the happy times, in the birthdays, the anniversaries, the college graduations, the high school graduations, the kindergarten graduations, for those um, weddings and those birth of children, special occasions. Look for Jesus involved and at work and praise him and thank him. He is Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us. So let's go on now and look at a snapshot of 
a distressing time, a scary time, when we're anxious and afraid. You know those times. Let's turn to Mark 4, and we're going to get a picture of that. Mark 4, and we're going to begin with verse 35. And this is a snapshot of a very distressing time. Let me begin reading verse 35. On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, let us go across the, uh, to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with them, and a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him, and they said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. And he said to them, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Oh my, this is vivid. I love this story. Mark gives us so many details, probably because he heard this from Peter himself, who was an, there, so it was an eyewitness account. And he um, tells us about this storm that comes up. And I can picture myself there. I can picture that wind blowing and the smell of that water as it splashes into my face and the rocking back and forth because I've been in a boat in a storm with great waves and it is scary. So in this story, Jesus has been teaching by the Sea of Galilee um, all day long to a large crowd of people. We see back in verse 1, it tells us that. He's teaching them in parables. This is at the beginning of his ministry. And now it's evening, and he says, let's get in the boat and go to the other side. Now, we don't know what he wants to do on the other side, maybe rest, or maybe he wants to get up the next morning and teach more crowds um, in that situation. We're not sure, but at any rate, he gets in the boat, and he's in the back of the boat, and he goes to sleep on a cushion. And the disciples begin to sail the boat across. And that's not a hard thing for them because some of the disciples, as we know, have been fishermen their whole life. They have been on the Sea of Galilee, so they're familiar with it. Now, the Sea of Galilee is a pretty large lake. It's 13 miles long and 8 miles wide, and they're kind of up at the northern part going from the west side to the east side when this furious storm comes up and the wind is blowing and waves are crashing and water is coming into the boat. I have a picture of this by Rembrandt, um, and you can really get a good picture of what is going on here Put that picture in your heart and mind. This is a scary time. And so they call out to Jesus and say, Teacher, do you not care? I love that that verse is in the Bible. Because how many times have you said, Jesus, don't you care? You know, I know I've said that in distressing hard times in my life. Even when I know he does care. Somehow it brings us out of us and we say, Jesus, do you not care? And what does Jesus do? He stands up and he says, peace, be still. And the wind stops blowing. And the waves are calm. The storm is gone and it's perfectly calm. And then he says to the disciples, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? Now, I used to read this like Jesus saying this in a harsh tone, probably because that's what I would say to my kids, but I really think now that Jesus was saying that in a kind and gentle and loving tone. He was loving these disciples and teaching them the faith. And now, I love verse 41. 
It says they were filled with great fear. They were afraid when they thought the boat was going to sink and they were going to die. But now that they've just seen what Jesus does, they are filled with great fear. And they're saying to each other, who is this man who just did what only God can do? God has the power over nature. God has the power to to command the wind and the waves. Only God can do that. They didn't really understand yet who Jesus was. He is Emmanuel, God with us. So in your troubling, scary, distressing, fearful times, maybe it's financial problems, maybe it's serious health issues or relationships that are in trouble, that messed up relationship with a friend or a child or a spouse, and you're feeling desperate, remember this picture. Jesus is powerful. Nothing is impossible with Jesus because Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. Have faith in him. Um, In those hard times, in those desperate times, I want to trust Jesus. I want to put my faith in him and be still. Be still. Okay, so what about your sad times? Is Jesus with us in our sorrow? I have a picture of that little snapshot, and it's back in John 20. So turn to John 20, and it's, we're going to start in verse 11. Let me tell you a little bit what's going on here. This is um, what I call Resurrection Sunday. This is Sunday morning after Jesus died on the cross Friday night. And you might remember that they took Jesus off the cross, and they put him in a tomb, and they had to hurry because Friday evening when the sun went down started the Sabbath. It went from Friday sundown to Saturday sundown. And during Sabbath, you had to be in your house. You couldn't be walking around and doing work. You had to be home. So they did that kind of quickly. And so we know that um, the disciples and other followers of Jesus, men and women, other followers were probably together in a large room um, that whole Sabbath day scared and sad and who knows what all and then early Sunday morning we know that the women got up and they brought Sabbath is over so they get up with their spices and they go to the tomb and they're going to anoint the body of Jesus but the tomb is empty and so they run back and they tell the followers and the disciples and we know John and Peter jump up and they run to the tomb and it's empty and so they go back with the women but Mary Magdalene She stayed in the garden at the tomb. And so let's read what happens here. Verse 11. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. And they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but... She did not know that it was Jesus. So we see here that the first person Jesus appears to after his resurrection is Mary Magdalene, a woman. I kind of love that. Now, Mary Magdalene was devoted to Jesus. He had healed her of seven demons, and she had been following him wholeheartedly ever since. And she is heartbroken over the death of Jesus. And now his body is gone. You know, she didn't really understand the resurrection. None of his followers at this point understood the resurrection. And so in her great sorrow, Jesus comes to her. And this is what he says. His first words are words of concern and words of care. Listen, he says, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? 
And then she doesn't recognize him. She thinks he's the gardener. She says, sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've laid him and so I can take him. Now, we don't know why she didn't recognize Jesus. Maybe her eyes were filled with tears. Maybe she wasn't really looking at him. Maybe he had changed. I mean, her eyes were just blinded to this being Jesus. And so the next thing he says is said with love and compassion. It's her name. And he says, Mary, Mary. And she instantly recognizes his voice, and she says, it's Jesus. And she's comforted right then by this love and compassion with him saying her name. He speaks her name. He knows her. He knows her. He knows her name. And he knows each one of us individually. He knows our name. And he wants to comfort us in those times of sorrow. And then he goes on to give her hope and a purpose. In verse 17, he says, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. So he gives her hope in the midst of her sadness by telling her of this new relationship. Mary, you are going to be in my family forever. He says, calls the disciples brothers. He has never called them brothers before this. He's called them friends, but not brothers. And he says, my God and your God, my father and your father. That is what Jesus did for us with his death on the cross and his resurrection. We as believers are now part of this family of God forever, for eternity. And this is what he says to Mary to encourage her. And then he gives her purpose. He says, go and tell my brothers. And we know from verse 18, that's exactly what she does. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. And that he had said these things to her. Put this picture in your heart so that you can know in those sad times that Jesus is with you. He cares for you. He knows you individually. Listen as he calls out your name. Be comforted by that. He understands your grief and sorrow. In fact, Isaiah tells us, 53b, Jesus was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He understands our sorrows, and he wants to comfort us. And he wants to encourage us with hope and purpose. So look for hope and purpose in your sorrow. Remember that you are going to be with Jesus forever in eternity. And think about that purpose. In times of sorrow, I will seek to experience the comfort and the encouragement of Jesus I was in a funeral recently, and the pastor um, talked about the verse 2 Corinthians 1, 3, and 4. And I think this can give all of us great purpose in times of sorrow. It's on your verse sheet, and it says this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our afflictions so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. That's a great purpose for us. So let's go on, and we're going to look now at a snapshot of Jesus in the middle of our times of doubt and confusion. You know those times? It's when I say, I do not understand, Lord. Or times when you say, is this really your good plan? It's kind of that emoji. Do you guys know what emojis are? Okay, I I was like the last one to find out. 
Um, but I, I use them now, and my favorite one, any of you that I text, is that um, circle with the big eyes and the dots in the middle, the totally confused emoji. That's me most of the time. You know, that, that's what this story is about. This story is about doubt and confusion, Jesus being with us in the midst of that. So let's turn to Luke 24. So now back... Luke, it's Matthew, Mark, Luke, 24, it's the last chapter, and we're going to be starting with verse 13. So this um, is taking place actually the same day um, that we were just talking about with Mary Magdalene. It's Resurrection Sunday, but it's probably later in the day, maybe early afternoon. And two of Jesus' followers, um, they're leaving Jerusalem and they're going to Emmaus. And we just said that the followers of Jesus and the disciples, you know, men and women followers alike, were probably all together in a room. And now it's afternoon and they're going maybe back home. We don't know, but they're walking to Emmaus. So let's begin reading verse 13. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking and discussing together. And Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. And then one of them named Cleopas answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he says to them, what things? You know, it's like they're seriously, you don't know what's been going on. And so they tell him concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people. And how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb. That would be Peter and John. And found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. So here's these two guys, and they're walking along the road, but guess what? They might not be two guys. We know one is. It's Cleopas, but the other one could be a woman. It could be the wife of Cleopas. We're not sure, but two followers of Jesus, and they are talking about what's happened, and we see there it tells us they're sad, and it also sounds like they're confused. You know, they had hoped that he would redeem Israel, that they wanted Jesus to be the Messiah, but now they don't know with him dying, and now the tomb's empty, and nobody's really seen him. Obviously, they left before Mary Magdalene got back to tell them the good news. So they're walking, and they're sad, and they're disappointed, and they're confused, and they tell Jesus this report. And so what does Jesus say to them? Verse 25, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Don't you love that? What does Jesus say? He begins to teach them the scriptures. The the scriptures, and when it says it began with Moses, that's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And when it says the prophets, that's Elijah and Elisha. They're in the kings. And that's Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Daniel. It's the whole Old Testament. And he's pointing out the, the scripture verses there that talk about him, that tell them what was to happen. 
Now, I don't know how much of this he got in, but they did have seven miles to walk, so he probably said quite a bit. And I have a picture of this. I love this picture. I love it because it's beautiful, but we see Jesus right in the midst of them, alleviating their doubt and confusion by teaching them the scriptures. And I really love it. The person on the left looks like, what do you think? Maybe a woman might be the wife of Cleopas. Put that snapshot in your mind for those times when you are confused. And then what do they do? So then they get to Emmaus. So the, he, they invite him in because now it is late, and they say, come have dinner with us. And so Jesus does. And when he breaks the bread and blesses it, it says their eyes are open, and they realize, it's you, Jesus. And then he vanishes. And what do they say? Verse 32. They say to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem and found the eleven. So, have you ever had a moment like that? I have. When you're reading the scriptures and your heart burns within you as the Holy Spirit gives you understanding of that scripture. Maybe you're looking for direction. Maybe you're trying to learn more about Jesus, and you have that understanding. It's those moments when you say, I get it. I understand that. And that joy and excitement burns within you. That is what they were feeling. And so they were so excited by that, they had to get back to Jerusalem to tell the disciples and the other followers. Um, Even though it's seven miles and it's dark, they jump up, and I think they probably ran most of their way back to Jerusalem to tell them, we understand, listen to what Jesus explained to us. So what do we do when we're confused and filled with doubt? You know, we have those times. It's when you say, what does God want me to do? Or I say, what does this mean? What's going on, Lord? Who are you, Jesus? Pull out this picture of these two confused, doubting people and Jesus teaching them the word of God. In times of doubt and confusion, I will read the Bible, God's word, and be reminded of who Jesus is or maybe learn more about who Jesus is. He is Emmanuel, God with us. And lastly, we're going to look at a snapshot of everyday life. Is Jesus with me in the ordinary times, those same old, same old, everyday wake-up times? Am I even looking for him when I'm making the beds, doing dishes, going to work, being at work, taking care of kids or grandkids or parents, fixing dinner? Jesus, are you there in the midst of all that? Let's turn to John 21. Back, it's the last chapter in John, and we're going to see a snapshot of Jesus in the ordinary times. And we're going to start with uh, verse 2. Okay, John 21, verse 2. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, that would be James and John, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. And they said to him, we will go with you. And they went out and they got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. So here we see that some of the disciples, probably all of the disciples, but there's just, I think, six or seven mentioned here. They are back up north in Galilee. They're at the Sea of Galilee. And why are they there? Because Jesus told them to go back to Galilee. And we read that on our verse sheet. Um, 
Matthew 28, 10, then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid, go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. So they've gone to Galilee, and they um, decide to go fishing. Now, we've said before that some of them were fishermen. We know Peter um, was a fisherman for a living. Maybe they're going to go out, and he's going to try to catch something either to eat or maybe to sell, provide for his family. So they go out, and they fish all night long, but they catch nothing. So let's see what happens next. Verse 4. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore. Yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus says to them, children, do you have any fish? And they answered him, no. And he says to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. And it says they cast it and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved, that would be John, who wrote this gospel, he says to Simon Peter, it is the Lord. And when Peter hears this, typical Peter fashion, he jumps overboard and starts swimming to shore, even though he can't get to Jesus fast enough, even though it tells us that the boat is not very far from shore. But he's swimming, and then verse 9 tells us, when they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid on it and bread. And Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard, and he hauled the net ashore full of large fish large fish, and there were 153 of them. It was a miraculous catch. And the other miracle we see here is that the net was not torn from this big catch. And then verse 12, he says, come and have breakfast. Now, none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. And Jesus came and he took the bread and he gave it to them and so with the fish. So here we see Jesus in a very ordinary time, breakfast. doesn't get more ordinary than that, fixing breakfast. And what I see in this picture is that Jesus still cares for the disciples. He's still providing for them in miraculous ways even. He still has good plans for them. He's still loving them and serving them. And I also see in this snapshot the disciples listening to his voice and obeying him and fellowshipping with him. So we can think about this picture of Jesus serving breakfast to the disciples and know that he is with you and me every day in our ordinary tasks. And we want, I want to listen to him throughout my day. I want to hear his voice and obey him. Now, we can do this every day by reading the Bible and talking to him and listening for his voice, listening to other godly people, what they tell us. Listen in your heart, stopping and being aware of God's presence in your day, looking for him. You know, there was a monk, Brother Lawrence, he uh, was a believer, and he lived in the 1600s. He had joined a monastery, and he worked in the kitchen. And instead of just seeking God in personal times of devotion and meditation and scripture reading, or maybe even church services for us and Bible studies like this, he began to practice the presence of God in everyday activities. And so for him, that was while doing the dishes, a lot of dishes in this big monastery. And so during this time, he's practicing the presence of God. And he writes letters, and he said in one of these letters, it takes practice to be aware of his nearness. 
It takes practice to be aware of his nearness. Stop in your day and call out to him. Look for him. Be aware that Jesus is with you. He is Emmanuel. And I have a picture, my picture of ordinary life. Let me put that up. This is my mom and my youngest granddaughter, Harper. Now, this was taken two years ago, so Harper was three and a half. And my mom is showing Harper how to shuck corn. And so for 30 minutes, she sat there and shucked all the corn for our dinner. And I love this picture of just ordinary life because it reminds me of my mom, how she has walked with Jesus um, Every day, in the hard times and in the good times, in the troubling times, in the really very sad times, um, in the ordinary times, fixing dinner. And my mom has fixed many, many dinners. And all this time, she has walked with Jesus and she has obeyed him. And I love our little Harper. She is young, but she has a heart for Jesus. She loves Jesus, and she has that deep childlike faith. It's the kind of faith that Jesus tells us we need to come to him. So tonight we've looked at that name, Emmanuel, and we've said that it means God with us. And that is the promise in the name. The meaning is the promise in the name Emmanuel. God is with us. So as we walk with Jesus, no matter what's going on in your life, no matter if it's good times or bad times or troubling, distressing, confusing times, lonely times, sad times, or just the ordinary, everyday times, we can know in all situations, Jesus is with us. He is Emmanuel. Matthew opens his gospel with this name, Jesus, Emmanuel, and he closes his gospel with Jesus saying this in Matthew 28, 20. These are the words of Jesus, last verse in Matthew. Jesus says, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are a good, good God, and you are with us. You sent your son God the Son, Jesus, so that we might have these pictures of you with us. Your power and your comfort and your encouragement. Oh, Lord Jesus, thank you. Thank you for loving us and for being with us. Father, thank you for these women in this room and for their heart for you, their desire to learn more about you, um, to learn more about Jesus through his names. And I just pray, Father, that your words would go deep into our heart, that we would know you better, that we would love you more, that we would serve each other. Father, bring these um, ladies back next week. We love you, Lord. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.